Everybody wants freedom. If we took a poll, we said, would you rather be in bondage, in prison, or free? I'm pretty sure we'd get close to 100% freedom. It might be an outlier somewhere, but I'm pretty sure we'd, I'm pretty sure we'd get close to 100%. You watch, uh, I've come to the conclusion that most all of the, the movies that are produced have something to do with freedom. People being set free from a circumstance or a situation or nations being set free. Someone in prison being freed. All of, we continually are thinking about freedom. It's as though it's a part of of our DNA. As though it's it's ingrained into who we are. That we're always choosing, looking for, yearning for freedom. And the question I've been asking myself is Why? Where does that come from? And for a lot of people, maybe not so much for us, but a lot of people, the answer to that question is surprising to them. Because I'm convinced that this yearning, this this inner desire for freedom comes from God. Now that confuses a lot of people because there are a lot of people who tend to think, and quite frankly, some of the reason they think this is the church's fault... But they they think God is all about anything but freedom. God is about confining us. God is about restricting us. God is continually saying no, 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 no. But that's not the image we get of God from the very beginning. From the beginning, God is about freedom. And in the passage we read from Genesis this morning, we see that. After talking about creating the human human beings, it says God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Go live in freedom and reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. And I like the way the New Living Translation says, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. He said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth, all the fruit trees for your food. I've given you every green plant as food for all the wild animals and the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And God said that was good. And when we read that, we see God's created intent for us was freedom. Now, the reason we think maybe it's not is because in chapter 2, God says, but... And when you come to the middle of chapter 2, he says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And we read that passage, and we read those words, and what do we focus on? Except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We focus on the negative, the, the tree that they're not allowed to eat. And we miss completely what it says before that, that God says you can eat freely from every other tree in the garden. Just except one. And I think Adam and Eve get enamored with that one tree. When you read the story, I get a sense that they can't stop thinking about that one tree. And, and we do the same thing. We've been given the freedom, all of this freedom in our, in our being, in our DNA, in how God created us. And what do we do? We have a tendency 
to choose bondage. We have a tendency to choose the thing that, as God says, will enslave us. And when Paul writes to the Galatians, he is writing a letter about freedom. Because these, they are a group of people, a group of Christians, who have chosen bondage over freedom. As far as we can tell, the background of this letter is that there are some, some Jewish Christians, probably from the Jerusalem church, from the mothership, that has come out of, of there and has come to Galatia and trying to tell them, no, you guys are wrong. Paul went there on one of his missionary journeys. He preached the gospel. These are basically all Gentiles in the Galatian church. They're all Gentiles, and Paul says, you've come to Christ, this is awesome, let me nurture you and disciple you. And now these other Christians come and say, whoa, whoa, wait a second, this isn't right. You're not really Christians, because in order to be really Christians, you have to be Jewish first. You have to embrace all the law, you have to follow all the laws of Moses, you have to, you have to become Jewish, and once you become Jewish, then you can become Christian. You cannot circumvent that. And this is such a big problem among the Galatian church that, that even though, well, put it this way. The, Galatian, the letter to the Galatians is not written to a church in a city. You know, Philippians is written to the church in Philippi and Ephesians to the church in Ephesus and Corinthians to the church in Corinth. But Galatia is not a city, it's an area. It is, it's sort of like, uh, you know, western New York. And it's written to this area where there are lots of churches. And I find it fascinating that Paul can write one letter to all of these churches and deal with the primary problem all of them are dealing with. It's that widespread. It's that much of an issue in every one of the churches. And I suspect it's probably an issue in our church as well. Because we all wrestle with, with, being, with choosing bondage, the bondage of human forms over the freedom of God. Paul says it's foolishness. He says it here in verses 6 and 7. He says it again in chapter 3 a couple of times as well. He says, you guys are fools. Why would you do this? Why would you choose that? It makes me think of all the ways in which people try to scam us in our technology age. Right? I mean, you, you get the phone calls, the emails, you know, the, the internet boxes that pop up. You know, people are trying to scam us. And when anyone accidentally or not realizing it gives into one of those scams, you feel so foolish. In fact, they've, studies tell us that a lot of people who are scammed never tell anyone because they're so embarrassed about it. it you know, you feel foolish. And here are the Galatians and Paul saying to them, look, you've been scammed and you know you've been scammed. And you're still doing it. What's wrong with you? And there's something in our human nature that believes that our, the forms that we create, the rituals, the ways that we do Christianity are more important than the freedom of God. The problem is, every time we choose forms over God's freedom, we limit God. Our forms are continually limiting God. We say, this is how God works. This is how God does it. And we say that as if God could not do things any other way. 
And when people say, well, that may be true for you, but God did this for me this way, we disregard it. We say they can't be true. Paul is, is saying to, to Peter, he says, you know, I, I confronted Peter because he was saying, Paul, you're not preaching, you're not, because Peter was saying with the Gentiles, he would eat with them and act like they didn't have to be Jewish. But as soon as the Jews from Jerusalem showed up, Peter stopped eating with them. And he said, well, you know, I changed my mind. Now you do. Maybe God doesn't work that way. I think maybe these people are right. And, and Peter gave in to that just like we do. And the forms that we create, however helpful they may be, however they may nurture us and, and help us experience Christ, are never more important than the freedom God has given us that allows him to be God. And to not be limited. Right? I think that one of the ways we do this is that we have created this formula, particularly in the evangelical church, about how people come to faith. Many of you would, would remember this, but when I was young, there, were, there was a, a system of telling people about Jesus that was developed. And it was helpful and it was good. And there were nuances of it, but basically it took people through these three or four steps of coming to Christ. And there's a lot of value to it, and it helped a lot of people. But we came to so embrace that, that we came to the place of saying, if not with our words, certainly with our actions, you can't come to Jesus unless you come through that path. And, and so we have these formulas, and we ask people, so when did you do this, and when did you do that? And, and did you do this? And did you do that? And if they haven't, what's our response? Well, you aren't quite there yet. Now, here's what I find fascinating. When I read the Gospels, I don't really see a lot of those formulas we've created in the people who encounter Jesus. And it, it bothered me for a long time because I would read these stories of people whose lives were changed and try to find the formula and I couldn't find it. You take Zacchaeus, for instance. You know, here's, a, here's a guy who's a sinner, he's a tax collector, the people hate him. In fact, you know, if he went to Sunday school or you know that story, you, you know he was short. And Jesus came to town and they weren't about to let him peek through the crowd to see, so he climbed up in a tree. And Jesus walks by and like A.J. said last week, Jesus says to him, hey, you got any food? And, and he, he wants a meal. It is amazing how many times Jesus asked people to feed him. But he... So Zacchaeus climbs down from the tree and he runs home and he has this meal with Jesus. And what does the scripture say? He says to them, he says to Jesus, I'm going to give away what I have. I'm going to, I'm going to give back to the people I've cheated. I, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. And Jesus says what? Well, that's great, but you haven't followed the formula yet. No, he says, salvation has come to this house. And you could say, well, there's an underlying that, but if it was... As important as we tend to make it, I would think it would be clearer. And I'm not saying that the formulas can't be important and helpful. They can be. They are. Most of the forms that we create have great benefit. But we just have to remember God's bigger than the forms. Maybe for some of you, you wrestle with, with having the kinds of experiences in your life that people tell us we should have. If you do, I understand because I wrestled with that for a long time. 
You know, I've grown up in the church. In fact, being a pastor is sort of our family business. You know, there's 10 or 11 of us in my family. It's what we do. And, you know, I was born on a Wednesday and I was in church on Sunday. And probably if they had church on Friday, I would have been there on Friday probably. And, And I was on church virtually, I mean, every Sunday since then and lots and lots of days in between. And I was raised in Sunday school and the children's programs and the youth group. And, and, I, and I know, I grew up knowing all about Jesus. And yet there was something in me that people said, that's great. But have you had an experience with Jesus? And I spent, I can't even tell you how many dozens and dozens, I don't know, maybe it's hundreds of times at an altar rail or beside my bed praying for that experience so I would know I was really a follower of Jesus. And all the while, my heart wanted nothing more than to be a follower of Jesus. And it was not just confusing to me, it was disruptive to my life. And finally, I came to the place with some help of some other people of realizing I didn't need that experience with Jesus. Some people do because they knew nothing of Jesus. I didn't need that experience. I didn't need a 180 degree turn. In fact, doing that would have put me in the exact opposite place I should have been. (laughs) What I needed to do is just simply embrace the fact that I love Jesus and the grace of God in my life. Instead of looking for an experience that people said I needed to have. And once I came to that place, you know what I found? I found freedom. I found freedom. And all of a sudden I realized God is not limited to the forms that we create. And for some people, this is the path and that's what they need. And for other people, it's this path. The point is, it's coming to Jesus. What I find is that when we get stuck in those forms, which, you know, we sometimes want to use the term legalism and that may work as well. But often legalism has a sense of what we're talking about has no merit. But we're talking about things that have value. It's just that they're, they're in the wrong place. That we give them the wrong amount of value. But when we get stuck in the forms, when the forms become more important to us than Jesus, one, reason, one way we know that is become, we become very critical and judgmental of people who have a different form. And our forms are usually based on our experience. So, you know, my temptation is to say to people, look, you don't need those kinds of forms at all. And in fact, if you follow those forms, I don't know, something's wrong with you. You, don't, you shouldn't have to do that. That's just as wrong as saying you have to follow the form and, and being suspicious of my thoughts and my journey. We all have these things and it tends to be our experience. And that's how we judge it because what's right is what? My experience, right? That's how we judge. We become critical and become judgmental. And those are the moments when we start. Our, our primary question driving us is who's in And who's out? Who's done the right things and who hasn't done enough? We become very judgmental about people who we don't think have experienced what we think they should experience. And what we do is we miss out on what God's doing in people's lives. I remember I was probably, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. I was traveling with my dad. He was going to speak someplace. And and we were on the road traveling... uh, I don't know, maybe a few hours from our house. And 
And it's funny how you remember certain things. I remember we, we stopped for dinner. And what I remember is it was a Ponderosa restaurant. I have no idea why I remember that. But I do. I, maybe it's because it was all you can eat. And I thought that was pretty great. But I just remember sitting in this restaurant. And we were talking. And, and a friend of my dad's who was also a pastor in that area came over, saw him. And they began to talk. And I'm just sitting there listening to this conversation, eating. And they're talking about, this man was talking about his son. And the pastor was saying how he was lamenting his son's decisions that his son was making in his life. And he was so upset. And he was asking my dad to pray for him and to pray for his son. Because his, son was, his life was just completely going off the rails. And, and, he could hardly, and the, the father couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. He was just so concerned about his son whose life was a train wreck. He knew everything. And he'd given it all up. And so my dad was very gracious to him and... And the man eventually left, and I said to my dad, what's up with his son? You know, I'm picturing like you are, prison, drugs, you know, he's living on the street. He's, I, you know, I don't know. And my dad said to me, kind of smiled, because he, he didn't quite buy into everything that this pastor friend did. But he said to me, well, he said his son's a part of the Jesus people. And I'm thinking, as a 12-year-old, that's not a good thing? Wouldn't it be good to be a part of Jesus' people? And I asked my dad, and he said to me, well, he said, you know, you got to understand, the Jesus' people, is, you know, they, they moved to California, you know, they, they live on the beach, they, they wear, in those days, hippie clothes, you know, beards, long hair, necklaces, they, uh, they sing songs with a guitar, and they're not in the hymnal, and they, you know, <laughs> and they, you know, they, and, and they, you know, all these things. And, and they dance and they speak in tongues. And, you know, he said, you know, for him, it, it's just so foreign to how he has ever encountered God. He cannot see anything but destruction from this. And there, I'm not to say the Jesus people movement didn't have some issues. But his son had, was simply experiencing Jesus in a different way. And he couldn't see that. Couldn't see past the, the only way to encounter God. And it was driving a wedge between him and his son. And see, that's one of the issues with this is that it's not just about us. It's always about other people. Because if, if we are really committed to, to the bondage of our forms and the way we see things and the boxes that we create, when we do that... We want to make sure everybody else is in bondage too. And quite frankly, when you're in that bondage, freedom is difficult for us. We don't want people to be free. We want people to, to see things the way we do and to live in that because we live in it. And the joy of the Lord is not a part of our lives. But it's never just about us. It's always about other people. And, and that's why Paul says here, he talks in, in verses 8 and 9 about how he says, if those who are preaching a different gospel, may God's curse be upon them. Twice he says that. That is pretty strong language for Paul. And you'll notice in this letter, it's so different from most of his other letters that he begins by saying, I thank my God for you. I'm so happy to see what's going on. It's great to, to see what's happening in your church. And he spends almost the whole first chapter of most of his letters with these kinds of, of accolades for them. But this letter, he gets right at it. You guys are fools and may God be cursed if you're preaching this kind of gospel. 
Because it's that dangerous. It's not just dangerous for, for us. It's dangerous for the people that we influence. For the people who are led astray by the words that we speak and the life that we live. It's more interested in preserving our forms than in people encountering Jesus. At the heart of of all that Paul is writing here is this sense of, we don't really trust the grace of God. People who are, for lack of a better term, people who wrestle with legalism, and let's be honest, we all do in some form. We all wrestle with it in some form. People who wrestle with legalism are basically saying, I don't really accept the grace of God. I don't want God to be that gracious. I want God to be gracious, just not that gracious. And Paul writes in verse 21, I do not consider the grace of God meaningless. And I suspect he writes that because these false teachers, these people from Jerusalem are saying, Paul doesn't want anything to do with the grace of God. He says, oh no, I want the grace of God. And I suspect they're saying Paul's kind of grace, that's really cheap grace. It's easy grace. And Paul says, no, 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 it's just grace. Because freedom is always, always, always rooted in the grace of God. It's always about God coming to us. Because when we get stuck in our bondage to forms and rituals and legalism, what what is our life primarily about? It's primarily about me. It's what I want. It's what I want to do. It's how I see things. But the grace of God, freedom, is always about God. It's about giving God the freedom to act the way he wants to. To work with people the way he knows is best. To bring them into the kingdom in the way that they will experience him that might look different from the norms that we feel comfortable with. That's the grace of God. And when we begin to challenge or distrust the grace of God about other people, we're doing it to ourselves too. And that's a scary thing. If you had to pick one passage in, I think, the whole book of Galatians that would say this is the hinge point, everything comes back to this. This book that with one of its themes is about freedom. I think it comes back to Galatians 2.20. Where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's not about me. It's about him. And how do I live? How do I live in the freedom that God wants me to live in? By surrendering to Christ. Because it's always about Christ. Always comes back to Christ. Everything of the freedom of God is about Christ. And as someone has said, the people who have Christ and everything else have no more than the people who have Christ and nothing else. Because it's always about Jesus. The struggle for us is that we so often take good things, helpful things, things that have been instrumental in our lives, 
and we, we make them the center. This summer, John and Andrew and I went down to Pittsburgh to watch a couple of the uh, a couple of baseball games. The Cubs were playing the Pirates. They're big Cubs fans. And uh, we went to PNC Park. And if you've never been down there, it's a beautiful place. We've been there a number of times. We love going to games there. It's a beautiful stadium. It's set on the banks of, the, I think, the Mahongahela River. And uh, you can see from the, you can see there on the, looking toward the outfield, uh, the skyscrapers, the bridge. Uh, it, it's just a beautiful setting. It's a beautiful stadium, the architecture. And we love going there, and it's a wonderful place to, to watch a game. But what if when we got down there, we got to the outside of the stadium and started looking at it, and, and we just spent the next three hours just walking around the stadium, admiring the beauty of it. And we, we walked from one block down to the next block and all around, and we kept circling it, just admiring the architecture and the scenery and the statues that they have outside and, and all the, the, the vendors and everything outside the stadium. And we, we, we would stop and we would say, wow, that is a, that's an amazing piece of architecture right there. And, and look at the bridge that you can see. And while the game was going on, all we did was walk around the outside of the stadium admiring its beauty. Anybody who watched us do that would say to us, you guys are idiots. What is wrong with you? That's why you came here? You spent all that money for tickets and this is what you did? What is wrong with you? You're fools. And they'd be right. Totally irrational. And I think there is something of that in what Paul's saying to us here. We get so enamored looking at what houses the action. We forget there's a whole lot of stuff that Christ wants to do. We get stuck in the shell. We get stuck in the forms that are good and wonderful and beautiful and helpful. But not more than Jesus. And freedom in Christ is letting God be God. Letting Jesus be do what he wants to do in the way that he wants to do it with whomever he wants to do it. And living in the freedom of God's grace. I suspect there is at least something in our lives that might tempt us to walk around the stadium instead of Really engaging the freedom that's ours in Christ. It's a great opportunity today to ask God to change our focus. And to set us free. Father, we want to thank you. That you are gracious and merciful. That you've given us this amazing gift of freedom. Forgive us that we sometimes choose bondage. That we turn good things into things that are more important than you. Good experiences into experiences that are more important than you. Forgive us. Set us free.
Help us to help us to truly understand and experience the words of Charles Wesley. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amen.